Hey guys, this is Suresh Samandam, founder and CEO of Kissflow. I'm also one of the founders of SaaS Boomi. So as you know, we already had the first season of SaaS Boomi, a super duper success. Now we are into the second season of SaaS Boomi podcast. In the second season, I dive deep into the stories of some of the most impactful startups. As a fellow entrepreneur myself, what I've done is I've attempted to bring perspective of a founder in my conversations with some of the India's biggest SaaS leaders. Truth to the spirit of SaaS Boomi's for founders and by founders motto, I hope the listeners go home with actionable takeaways in every single episode. So, without further ado, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to SaaS Boomi's podcast with SaaS founders. This is the season two that I'm doing with some amazing founders in India. Season two has been primarily about going in depth into what made a certain companies successful. There is always one theme that actually made certain companies successful. For example, Kissflow figured out that we sort of have to go away from category creation and focus on one category and go after inbound marketing inside sales. Right. And then it took us to some success levels. And similarly, there is something that makes every company um, bad. And that's the theme in which we are going ahead this season. And we have with us Ashok, who's the founder and CEO for Automate.io, which got acquired by Notion. And welcome to the show, Ashok. Great having you here. Thanks, Suresh. Thanks for having me here. So awesome. I think like one of the things I've had to say is that Kissflow is, of course, in the workflow space, right? And very, very adjacent to workflow space is the integration space. And we used to use Zapier as one of the default integration platforms when customers of Kissflow wanted to use it. And in that context, Mm -hmm. we always have known about Automate.io. And in fact, we used to internally joke around saying, you know what, we make more sales for Zapier (laughs) without they giving us even a commission or something like that. So we used to joke around that. In fact, I think we have probably sold 300 to 500 customers Zapier for Kissflow, through Kissflow, easily. Yeah. I I would have have partnered up with you guys. And yeah, I think we make really good complimentary products. Yeah. We could have been uh, complimentary, but but now we actually completely built the Zapier-like integration framework inside the product. Okay. We don't use Zapier anymore. So anyway, coming back, I want to understand what is the genesis of Automate.io? Tell us a little bit about the background and how did you end up this idea? Stuff sure. like that, that'll give again some background about the product, your background, everything, right? That'll be useful. Great. I'll uh, start with my background. So I've done my bachelor's in computer science from IIIT Hyderabad. Those that worked for a few services, uh, services firms. Then I did my first venture way back in 2007, 2008 for a good four years time frame. That really didn't go well. So we had to shut it down. And then I joined a SaaS firm in around 2012, which was doing very well for that time and uh, grew. I was fortunate to be there from go to market, uh, you know, initial market stages to a million dollar revenue. So that's where I've learned a lot on SaaS business model and, you know, go to market aspects. It was during that stint and somewhere around 2014, 2015, that we were really seeing really mushrooming of SaaS industry and a lot of vendors, you know, technology has become commoditized by then in the form of AWS and other things and really building online SaaS product wasn't really hard. It was becoming more and more easier. And then I think around that time, starting from around 2015, we were seeing a lot of SaaS businesses coming up, you know, very 
there was tens of applications for every small need. And that was also a genesis for the integration problem. And that's where I think the companies like Zapier have done a very good job where, you know, they were solving the obvious need of transferring a piece of data from one particular application to the other for cases like synchronizing your contacts, moving your web leads to CRM or email marketing apps and stuff like that. But in my stint as a product manager in the SaaS firm, I saw the market need at that time going way beyond a simple one-to-one integrations. I was seeing queries from you know customers, primarily SMBs in US, asking for more complex, advanced workflows than a simple one-to-one, which Zapier was offering at that point. So that was a seed idea for Automate. So Automate started off from day one as a complete workflow automation with conditional logic and advanced workflow options. So yeah, that's how uh, our journey started. Oh, okay. Since when you started, Zapier is already there, right? And they were also one of those unique companies which had this completely remote model of work. Before the time COVID and all hit us and we are forced to do remote, right? (laughs) They were like actually doing... In fact, I remember inviting someone from Zapier Mm -hmm. who used to work in Chennai in the remote paradigm. I think I forgot her name. Her name is Niveda. And I also used to interact with Wade Foster. We had some personal email interactions, but Niveda came to our office and gave this big lecture on how Zapier's remote model actually works. (laughs) So my question is related to how did you think about a differentiated strategy, given that Zapier is already a dominant player in that space? When you had to create Automate the DIO, what was the unique differentiator you or your team had in mind for sure. you to say, you know, this is how when customers want to come back and ask, you know, why should I use you instead of Zapier? Now, how did you answer the question? Yeah, I think the fundamental there was when I started in this in late 2015 and Zapier at that point was still a one-to-one simple integration, more like IFTT for business, right? You have some event happening in one application, let's say a contact being added in a CRM or somebody filling up a lead on your website and Zapier would be you know, transferring that data to a CRM or sending an email. So it's a one simple trigger and action kind of a model. While Automate, uh, the product differentiation was simply that we are a much more advanced workflow automation system. And that is where I clearly saw the customer need, at least from the few interactions that I had with the folks in US. You know, I sensed that the market need was going beyond a simple one-to-one integration. So our differentiation was clearly that while Zapier is a one-to-one integrator, we are a full workflow automation with the trigger, multiple actions, with a lot of conditional logic and branching in between. And that was from a product standpoint, that was clearly our differentiation. It so happened that a year later, Zapier would get into that space and do the workflow automation as well. And that was like a pivotal moment for me, you know. A lot of similar products were pivoting around that time. So when when we started, there was a couple of other products who started doing this workflow automation. And when Zapier came in and did their workflow, introduced their workflows, a lot of other companies completely pivoted. And for me, that was a moment where I had to take a step back and think, you know, now how would we differentiate? Should we go ahead with whatever we have or pivot to something completely? And to me, I took a long one, two months to think through about it you know, talk to a few people, get their insights. And then I think I made the very right choice of going ahead with what I had purely because of the fact that the market for such a need was really exploding with proliferating SaaS businesses everywhere, each company using tens and twenties of SaaS applications. And, you know, we really went on from that point on. It was a head-on competition with Zapier. But thankfully, with the space that we were in, we were not just solving a problem for the customer, 
we were also solving a problem for the software vendors like company like kissflow for example right you couldn't build a lot of integrations yourself you and you probably build integrations for three or four applications that are very close to your ecosystem and then probably leave the rest to for zapier to handle the integration and the integration problem was becoming so big at this point that vendors were looking for more than just zapier to fill in that gap and when we went out and we started integrating with this top 50 top 30 or 100 you know saas products at that point we were welcomed with open arms the vendor would say you know hey we using zapier but we badly need more people here our customers need more options they were happy to welcome us on board as a partner they were actively marketing us to their customer base and that's a welcome sign that we saw hey there's clearly space here you know we're doing we're able to solve a gap for the vendors we're able to solve a gap for customers there's no and from that point it was no looking back for us so that was a clear indication that there is room for more players in the space and you know that's how we really took it forward okay that's awesome can you also give some shed light some light into the scale that automate was able to achieve from inception at the time till date right so i think it automate we're going to talk about other topics of acquisition later but you still are providing as a service as an independent brand anyway right so you sure. could uh, talk about some scale sure what whatever, uh, whatever you can share right or i leave it to you sure yeah i'll can't share precise numbers purely going to some acquisition related aspects so but to give sense of ballpark so we are were doing a few million dollars in revenue you know less than 10 somewhere between i could say between 2 to 5 million when we got acquired we were running profitably for a good 3 years before the acquisition the growth rate was you know somewhere around 70 to 80% year on year for the, at least 2 years preceding the acquisition yeah so and i used to get the you know acquisition offers left and right i mean the space that we were in was so hard you know every saas business needed a feature or a product you know like automate or zapier right because they couldn't build all the integrations themselves so they needed a strategic product or a team that could integrate with these hundreds of applications at least businesses which have seen at least a 10 million revenue in saas they are seeing this really proliferation of integration problem so in that sense we were a hot acquisition target i used to get offers almost on a daily basis you know some email from a private equity firm or you know something like that so i then generally don't even respond to those emails but you know since like 20 post covid the space has become incredibly hot i was receiving offers from a lot of these marquee you know companies and you know i started interacting with a few and then i think went with something that had a really great potential and i really saw a good growth journey together with notion so yeah that's how uh, it worked out Okay, so now that we let the cat out, let's talk about. But before I go to the Notion story, like in terms of number of customers, like you would have like two thousand customers who are paying for Automate right now. Yeah, we do. Yeah, sure. So tell us about the Notion acquisition story. How did it happen? Was this a deliberate strategy, or is it organically happened? You know, all that stuff will be very curious for industry. And in Notion. See, there is a little bit of interest for me in Notion as well because we are having work management. We're going after the work management space, mm-hmm. although not necessarily like what Notion is doing, mm-hmm. but uh, slightly different from Notion. But the work management space is really getting hot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was very much tracking what Notion was doing, and then this acquisition happened. I said, "Oh, that's interesting." <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
and now suddenly notion is in india right with through automate acquisition right. so tell me and our listeners how did this notion acquisition happen was it a deliberate strategy organic give us more color into that that will be very useful for our audience sure so it is definitely not a deliberate attempt but we definitely weren't looking for any acquisition or at least from a strategic standpoint i was not making any moves for an acquisition although we were receiving a lot of inbound requests but as part of our general growth plans generally what we do is we keep looking out for hey what are the real hot apps you know high growth applications out there you know that are seeing a lot of traction you know let's get into an integration with them let's do a customer engagement you know kind of a program with them where we could be part of their podcast or webinar so that we can get some customers from there so that's a you know usual big avenue for us to attract customers and notion interestingly at least till a year ago it had this massive massive user base but it never even had an api and by virtue of that there's absolutely no integration that's even possible because they don't even have an api and we knew that they started working on the api so we really saw an opportunity there where once they release their api their customers their massive customer base who are really dying for integration with for with apps like let's say a google calendar or you know google apps or gmail or crm systems you know we could attract a lot of the customer base so we had an eye on that and so we did you know some kind of a strategic engagement with them where we were working with them very closely while they were building their beta api building our integration parallelly with them you know building our relationship with their development teams and partner teams there and so that's kind of made an impact on them and then once they released their api we were their launch partners integration launch partners along with zapier and when they released their api they extensively featured zapier as well as in their you know release integration partners you know we got a lot more eyeballs and a lot more reviews youtube videos about our integration because we able to have been working more deeply with them we were able to do a deeper integration and do some customer wow there so that's how we got to the attention of senior management and i think then that's the context in which akshay the coo he just sent a cold message on linkedin hey looks like we are having mutual common customer base let's have a chat and you know i know what the intent was and he reached out so and that's how we started talking and you know that's how the acquisition has culminated awesome I don't know how much you can talk about specifics of the acquisition any ballpark range you can say like the size of the acquisition or anything like that whatever is not confidential or whatever you feel feel comfortable that will be useful sure definitely the numbers of course are confidential but what i can say is we got a very good multiplier from where we were in terms of revenue purely owned by the demand for you know general saas demand and the demand for the space that we were in we were really a strategic fit for notion in terms of the gaps that we could fill gaps that we could fill for them in their product so yeah i think we were you know lucky to have found that strategic fit and i really saw a um, equal growth opportunity with notion notion is still in a space where the market potential is really really massive collaboration space documents it's more in the realms of google docs and microsoft office space and notion i believed with its revolutionary product in terms of how they revolutionize the user experience of using documents and with our product where we could seamlessly pull data from third party applications we thought we can really add a new dimension to the product and you know, that really appealed to me a lot and you know i really saw um, you know 10x growth potential from where we were you know riding along with notion yeah is it like in the 10x range 20x range or what kind of range that we are talking here 
I would say it is around the multipliers that you were seeing generally during that time, like a year ago with SaaS valuations and even public valuations. Okay. Got it. So what I mean, is this? I can't give you precise numbers there because I've already given a ballpark on the revenues and so doing <laughs> a multiple would almost give away. <laughs> I know. Sorry about that. So what I was also going to ask is what was the size of the company at that time? How big was the company in terms of employees and how did the employees take it? And how did you manage like all of the time, right? When something like as strategic, this happens, you got to keep it confidential because once you know something like this happening, people lose interest. They stop doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And as a founder, you know, like some of these things, you know, suddenly till the last, you'll dig 90 feet and the last 10 feet, you won't be able to dig or something, right? And something can Mm -hmm. fill through. So the founder's challenge is like, you know, I still have to do the plan of record activities while I'm making organizational restructuring, right? That was like, I did one recently and one of my team came and said, how did you do this? Like, you know, we changed so many things, but then till yesterday you were talking about something. Like, yeah. you know, I don't know. Yeah. Like, how do, we have this problem, right? So how did you manage that? That will be very interesting for people to listen. And by the way, how long did it take this whole journey take from interest, that cold email to acquisition? What is the time period? And how do you manage that within the team? That will be very useful for team to understand. Sure. So yeah, I think that was uh, really a challenge in terms of managing the, the whole communications with the team, managing, keep ensuring their morale is up. Because you know, at least a month before the acquisition, we uh, and at least exactly the six months before the acquisition, we were really hopping on a new market opportunity that we have identified in our own space you know, from the product that we had, which is a simple workflow. There was definitely a market opportunity that was 10x that we were really excited about. And we have started working on a version two or a enhanced version for a different market um, you know, of our product. And we were almost half built it. The team had tremendous commitment. They were going full throttle. And I personally was, you know, very passionate about, you know, bringing that out and then unleashing the potential of that for the company. And that's for one of the reasons I was never even talking to, you know, any of the good offers that I was getting, but I started talking only because it was notion and you know, it was worth the one hour talk, you know, to even explore the opportunity, right? So, and of course that, you know, we really saw, you know, at least one plus one equal to three kind of a possibility there. Now, from that kind of a state where the team was enthusiastically working on something and getting close to releasing something, you know, I had to get them to an end state where we would have to finally abandon what we were doing and then, you know, say that, hey, we are joining forces with somebody, right? So that whole journey, I mean, it's something that we have to be very subtle and at each point, you know, so you can't get them from one end to other end overnight and it's a journey that you have to take them through. And at every point with every shift that you make, you know, towards from one end to other, there has to be real rationale that you'd have to convey to them. There's no other way to doing it. It's just that you have to make them see, you know, why you're making this transition, why it's good for everybody. I think that's a fundamental and that is something that I was able to do. So Early on in my interactions, it was mostly like me interacting with the leadership in Notion. And soon after that, within a week or so, they were also wanted to speak to the engineering leaders, the product leader. And they we had a very good interaction with the technical counterparts here, with the people there. And that's when the care team came to know that this offer is like really serious now. And then in their interaction, so we were able to build that rapport and bridge with the team. So we had an alignment at the leadership level that we had to take this message down to at least the engineering leaders 
to see what is possible mutually going ahead. So we had to impart that vision into the you know junior managers and all the way down into the org. So that was an important and conscious effort that we built as we evolved our talks on acquisition, and that really paid well. Okay, awesome. And sorry, I probably didn't catch it. How many months did it take to from interest to this thing? So I think the entire process was a little over three months. That's very fast, actually. Yeah, I mean, in fact, from the initial interest from Akshay to the term sheet just took us two weeks. Awesome. But did you also get competitive term sheets or you just went this one that came to you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I was actually in talks with uh, you know one other firm in a similar space and also doing really well in the Bay Area and growing you know, phenomenally crazy, in fact. And when Akshay... You can mention that or is it, you don't want to mention that? I don't know. I don't want to mention that. So, uh, that's <laughs> sorry. So, but yeah, they were also in a similar space, but, you know, growing pretty fast. And when actually sent me the cold message on LinkedIn, I was in a second interaction with the CEO of this firm. And then, then I saw this message from LinkedIn, you know, from Akshay. And then I immediately knew the intent because they launched partners in integration. They just Do you think like the news got leaked out and Notion started showing interest? I wouldn't say that. I think it's just natural coincidence that happened because we were engaging with them pretty deeply for about six months before the acquisition in terms of technology partnership and other things. So, yeah, and it's natural that we got into the eyes of their senior management. So post they launched their API, the next big thing that they would want to do is generally build a lot of integrations. And instead of building something in how they would want to probably have some partner with somebody who has already done that with 100 applications already. So I think that's mostly natural. But I think, yeah, once I saw that message from Akshay, I got on a call very quickly and then told him the entire story of what happened, what's happening on my other end. So that told him that I almost have another offer. And then that's when he really expedited the whole process where, you know, from the initial call to the term sheet all happened within a two-week time frame. And then from then on, of course, it's all legal and due diligence that took about three months. Also, in this, can you talk a little bit about how the company was headquartered, where the company is headquartered? Is it an India store or US headquartered company? Because there is a lot of confusion among founders, like even there is an exit, something that happens, this domicile stuff is going to create problems and a lot of people are flipping because of that. It will be useful for founders to understand that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I think that's always been a problem with SaaS. And I don't think even today we have a clear solution to that. So every person, every expert that we talk to seems to have a different opinion about it. But yeah, I think we had a dual structure where we had a US entity, Indian entity, and that also helped us, in fact, in the... You were talking about the domicile. Are you India headquartered or a US headquartered? So in Kissflow case, we are a Hindu India headquartered. Our US, we also have a US entity, but that's a subsidiary of the India company. Like Freshworks is just the opposite. And I think Chargebee is Singapore headquartered and India is a subsidiary. So like, I'm just trying to understand what is the structure of these two entities? So we have a US entity, which is not related to the Indian entity. In fact, we had them completely independent. Later, I was told that, you know, if there had been a relation like Indian company being a subsidiary, that would have created a lot of problems. But thankfully, we didn't have that structure. It's completely different. The US entity was the front-facing entity for all customers, marketing, everything. Indian entity was more of a, you know, back office tech shop, right? And we kept them separate. There's no relation between those two entities. 
ஒரு So basically they acquired both uh, companies parallelly right so but just one thing okay so basically the us entity outsources work to indian entity and they basically act like a service provider building software services marketing uh, and sales services something like that that's right that's right okay yeah that's interesting i think yeah. this is a lot of issues that founders don't structure it correctly and then later when something happens In fact I remember Little Eye Labs there is a founder in Bangalore called Kumar like he was running Little Eye Labs which got mm-hmm. acquired by Facebook I see okay and this was like 7 8 years ago that's one of the talk of the town kind of acquisition because this was a very early stage Indian ecosystem startup ecosystem was starting to take off right and then Facebook acquires a company there's so much noise around it and then when I go talk to Kumar he said you know what this deal is about to <laughs> you know fell through because not hmm. because Facebook is not interested they're just thinking hey this legal work is so much mess it's just not worth that effort to do this right I'm about to they give up and you know finally you know they persisted and got it through yeah actually a lot of founders run into this hurdles a lot So one question I have is that you are now 7 months into Notion what mm-hmm. do you see about the cultural differences between the way you have built automate and now that you and your team is part of Notion tell us a little bit about the cultural differences between these two companies operate and how are your employees you know getting adapted to it that will be very interesting to understand Sure good question there because I think the cultural adaptation and compatibilities I think it matters a lot for you know the acquisition itself to be to become really successful and i think notion had a conscious plan on that and they were they you know in fact early earlier interactions as well conscious of the fact that the cultural alignment and how you know we treat our employees you know our value system you know we did well enough into that to come to an alignment that yes we are in a state where we can you know operate together so we had that top level alignment on that and then of course you know in our interactions with managers down the stream we saw a reflection of the same both sides and that's why we even felt comfortable getting into the acquisition so i think that is an important factor to consider you know as a founder even if you are selling or even buying a company you know cultural alignment matters a lot and post the acquisition it really does take a lot of work in uh, ensuring that no matter how aligned you are in terms of you know how the kind of people you attract the culture that you have already set in into your team there always tend to be differences in the way you work and how people communicate the level of communication the level of documentation the level of diligence that people give into certain things and you really have to put a conscious effort to just identify those gaps and then come to a mutual alignment talk to the team and then convey those differences and then lay out a road map to fill in the gaps over a periodic time frame i think that's something that both of our teams have put in i personally have put in a lot of effort in the last 6 months and we are now in a stage where we are able to fully offload everything to even the junior level engineers on both sides to take it further okay 
the full team came over to notion or or some people left or like how is that that integration happened and also it will be good to point out some specific cultural differences like some specific uh-huh. examples anecdotal at least because then people can understand true color of what we are really talking about yeah yeah, yeah. makes sense so i think uh, on the on the cultural differences i think one aspect uh, that where we saw some difference is in in generally the slack culture right so just to give you an example we would see from notion side generally the communication culture is like everything that you communicate is concise is in fact fairly elaborate not concise it's more like you know writing almost an email in a slack message with all the context and sending it at once right whereas with the most of the engineers at least engineering team at least on our side they send very concise very precise small very lightly worded uh, phrases and then they expect answers so the other side you know of course has a lot of problems in understanding the context and it used to take a lot of time so that's something uh, the, the mode of communication either in slack or either in terms of how we document things how detail we get into the documentation and then really ask the right questions so that was something that we really had to work on and i think it was really about you know convincing some of our folks here that this is a problem this is the make just making them see how hard it is for the other side which is working in a different time zone you know to understand what you're saying and then just making them realize the issue or a, or a matter or a series of interactions and then you know making them communicate better so i think that's the journey that we have gone through in at least in the last 3 months and you know once people start seeing that issue i think there's more alignment they are more in tune to you know getting the new policies and following the new practices so that's one thing that we had worked on what else actually i want to I want to sort of go little bit more personal on the see sure. putting the team aside right like you have been running the company as a ceo you get to make most of the decisions although there is a sort of a board you raise funding or no right you didn't right i, I have i mean i've raised a seed round but yeah how big was the round how big was the round how big was the seed round this is around 100k 100k okay it's like a friends and family kind of round yeah both it's a early seed i would say i've done friends and family earlier and then a seed round some form some form was involved yeah, in yeah. it's a hyderabad based more of a angel i would say okay Hundred yeah. K is pretty good, actually. Very less. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. I'm assuming you didn't lose a lot of equity in that. No. Okay. So what my question was, you get to make pretty much all the decisions yourself. Now you are an employee, although you're leading the India team. You're sort of reporting to someone. You have to make take permissions. You have to get approvals. Into previously, you had control on budget, what yeah. to spend, what not to spend. You know. how is your personal life changed after this acquisition right and now you have hierarchy you need to report to someone yeah. all that is changed right so tell us more about it. and previously if you need something to change in the product you can go ahead and change it but now maybe automate is still an independent company so it's still that part of the product related issues probably uh, smaller mm-hmm. issues but organizationally aligning and reporting budget allocations approvals like that will be useful to understand give us some color into that sure So yeah I think there are definitely going to be changes in a the way you operate b the kind of freedom that you have on various fronts and c of course how much of a say you have broadly in the organization's direction right just purely because of the scale changes and org changes so 
But I think fundamentally, I think any mature you know, entrepreneur, what they'll have to realize is what is ultimately important is the common uh, goal. And if the ultimate thing that a founder will have to bring to the table post an acquisition is to ensure the full alignment of the team, you know, to and aligning them towards the, aligning himself and the entire team to the organization's goals. And I think in that process, you know, everything else you know, you know, smaller things like the reporting hierarchy or financial you know, approvals, all those tend to take a backseat in my opinion, because once the founder himself is able to see that, hey, you know, he'll have to really put himself in a seat of, let's say, hey, if I'm running my company and if I have hired, let's say, a head of engineering or a head of product or a head of finance, and I'm like taking that guy's position right now. And of course, being part of a bigger company. So I think if that is the kind of uh, maturity that the founder has to align himself to, just making sure that he's aligning himself and he's aligning the entire org towards the common success. But yeah, I think talking from a notion standpoint and what my experience has been, I think it has been a real pleasure working with every department head, Marianne, the head of people, um, you know, the you know head of similarly with other departments. And they understand, you know, the kind of autonomy that I had earlier and they would communicate to me in, a, in such a nice way that, you know, they're always conscious about, you know, not giving me the feeling that, you know, so I'll have to take an approval or and then I'll have to report in something, you know, I'll have to you know, apply for my leaves. But at the same time, you know, communicating things in a generic way that so that if I'm missing something, I get it, right? So I think it's, it's so direct that, you know, anybody would feel offensive about. But I think the, I was really fortunate to, you know, have that kind of an alignment from each of the department heads that I was working at Notion to see where I'm coming from and be sensible about it. And I think that has really helped I think we are getting to like, we have another five minutes. We wanted to cover some important topics related to go-to-market. I would like to understand like what are the go-to-market approaches work for you in terms of getting, maybe you can talk about this at two stages, right? The first hundred customers, how did you go about getting the first hundred customers and talk about both the marketing and the sales part together, combined go-to-market. Like for example, in Kisflow, first hundred customers, I actually personally sold to them. I used to be the sales guy, but although it is remote sales, selling on the phone, sure. I used to sell pretty much for the first hundred customers. I was directly involved. And then the next 500 or whatever it is, how do we scale? How did you scale that? And you know, what worked in that area that will be useful for audience to understand. Sure. Great. I think this is one aspect that I was really passionate about as an entrepreneur, you know, generally how to get customers is something that I was always passionate about when I was even working as a product manager in my, um, you know, early job. So I think for me, a great thing that really worked for Automate is essentially the fact that, you know, we are solving a problem for the vendors as well, not just the customers. When I say vendors, the Salesforce or HubSpot, the other prominent SaaS companies that we integrate with, right? So we leverage that in a lot of ways. Our primary acquisition, to, before I get into specifics of the first hundred and the later strategies, just want to lay down our fundamental um, acquisition model. Our complete acquisition model was organic. You know, ours was a low touch, you know, SMB segment where there's absolutely no selling involved. Everything is purely discovered, try the product. If it works, you know, put in the card and be a customer forever, right? So that's essentially the model we operated in until at least a year ago, where we started some enterprise and mid-market motion. And with that model, the essential part was primarily discovery and product evaluation. 
and organic visibility was a big thing for us. And it was also a big avenue for us because we were dealing with not just one use case, we were dealing with thousands of integration use cases. To give an example of how in a typical customer uh, acquisition happens, somebody would go to uh, Google and search for, let's say, a Salesforce and a Trello integration, right? And we'll see a few results on, let's say, a Salesforce having a direct solution, which may or may not work for him. He'll probably see a Zapier. Then, you know, he'd probably see us you know, they're just right behind them and he'll just try both the products and then try and buy the product. Now, the use cases are so enormous for us that, you know, we could always permit it and combine it among these products. We integrated with 200 products. So we were in a position where we could reach out to these 200 products that we integrate with, you know, tell them that, hey, this is what our product is. This is the problem it solves. Will you be able to do some co-marketing with us? And back in those days, at least the market was not so crowded. At least we're talking about 2017, 18, Zapier and Automate were the major players in the space. And all these vendors were welcoming us with the open arms saying that, hey, we need more people here. We have Zapier, but we need more people here. You know, this is becoming a big, big problem for us with customers asking for a lot of integrations, right? And we used to do extensive co-marketing with them in terms of, uh, you know, doing the blog post, you know, or sometimes getting on a podcast. But one thing that we really used to harp on was making sure that we get a continuous flow of customers through the blog, through the marketplace listing on their website, making sure that we get the SEO value, the links value onto our website. And that really, really worked for, it was a scalable model that we could repeat, you know, so we had done that for top, you know, 100 SaaS products. Now imagine having links from these top ranking websites coming into our website, and then immediately in the mind of Google, it thinks that we are a big company. So, and that gave us an instant push in the initial two years, at least, where, you know, our rankings for our integration pages will almost be uh, exponentially growing year on year basis. So that's an organic. Sorry to stop you there. Sorry, Ashok. Did you have a try and buy model or do you have a freemium model? Which one did you have? Free trial or a freemium model? Or you had both? We had both. We had a free plan, but we weren't giving much away. And then for the other plans, we had a try and buy. And what will be the trial to conversion in terms of ratio? Like if the 100 customers are trying, how many customers ended up buying? What will be that ratio? That was pretty on the lower side. You know, Generally, I think in the sand industry, we're looking at a 5%. We had around 2.5%. And is it primarily SEO driven or paid marketing driven? What will be like the cost of customer acquisition? Like for example... In our cases, in some times, right, we spend in the SMB mid-market, we end up spending close to $1,500, $2,000 to acquire a customer, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, when I go to a, like a mentoring session and people talk about, you know, spending a few hundred dollars campaign and stuff like that, right? You know, every customer costs only a few thousand dollars. Forget about the campaign costing thousand dollars, mm-hmm. right? So that would also give audience some understanding about how much it is typically, although it is low touch SEO or, you know, Google search driven marketing model, the market has gotten a little crowded and the cost of acquiring such customers through those channels have become extremely expensive now, right? So Absolutely. tell us how, what has happened in your case. Yeah. So in our case, we weren't very heavy on uh, ad spent. We did experiment you know, Google ads and acquisition costs, you know. So in terms of advertising spend and return ROI on that, we didn't really work out for with our conversion rates. It also was purely organic, you know, Google search visibility, you know, acquisition. 
90% of our customers would discover us on Google, try and then pay us. That's it. And with that model, I think uh, if we look at on the cost of marketing versus you know customers, if we draw out a customer acquisition cost model, I think we were our lifetime value was just about $500 from a customer and our spend wasn't more than about more than one tenth of that. Oh, so what was the lifetime value you said? This was about $500. Lifetime value? Yeah. But isn't that too small, Ashok? It is, but I think the space that we were in, integrations was really getting commoditized. And sadly, one reason was that we were in a SMB segment. The churn was pretty high, not just because a lot of these businesses would go bust, let's say, in two, three years time frame. But being in integration space, integration was, uh, was also a part-time need for them. Like they would have a project for which they would need an integration. And then once the project is done, they would no longer need it or they would change the tools they were using. And, you know, that would alleviate the need for some integration. So we, there's a lot of uh, churn that we couldn't control. So that always tends to push down the overall uh, lifetime value. Sure. Now, I'm going to ask one last question. We are at one o'clock. We're going to end it. There was one question one of us asked me, volunteer, wanted to ask, which I forgot to ask is, is like, now that you have done the acquisition, if you have to give us like two or three do's and don'ts for acquisition, what would that be? Like, what are from your learnings? If you can at least say two few do's or don'ts, that will be very useful to close this conversation, Ashok. Okay. I think one thing on our do's is. Definitely align, try and align for something strategic. If you do, if you are in a space where you have multiple options, rather than going with somebody who's like a public company is just throwing a lot of money at you, try and align for strategic acquisition where you can grow along the or if you have an opportunity. Not everybody may have the opportunity, but if you do, always look for strategic exit than a, just a purely monetary exit. And of course, choose your partner very carefully in terms of their growth potential, because a lot of acquisition consideration could be in, in, in equity. And so, of course, the, that matters a lot in long term where we will end. So that's something on the purely the consideration and valuation aspects. Two, of course, alignment on cultures and culture value and what you bring to the table is always important. So that's something that definitely sidelined in a lot of other conversations in the acquisition, but later don't become important. So that is something that we were conscious of you know, while, while I was talking to Notion. Even if I wasn't so conscious about them, the fact that they brought a lot of discussion around those aspects, that sensitized me about it. And we did a lot of evaluation around that. So that alignment is equally important apart from the other conversations in an acquisition, like how aligned are your goals, your team's goals, the cultural alignment, and personally, your you know what you bring to the table and what you will be taking care of, you know, going ahead is also important. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. And thank you, Ashok. It was uh, really wonderful talking to you. And I actually wanted to catch up with you. I don't know whether you come to Chennai. If you come, just ping me and we'll catch up for a drink or a coffee or something. And if I come to Hyderabad, you're still in Hyderabad, right? I'm in Hyderabad, yeah. Yeah, I will definitely ping you. You have a lot of things to talk. I guess I'll catch you soon. Thank you very much for taking time. I think there's an enormous amount of takeaways for the audience from this session. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Suresh. Thanks for having me. Hi, folks. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share your thoughts and feedback to hello at sasbumi.com. You can access this and all other episodes of Sasbumi's podcast at www.sasbumi.com. Sasbumi is spelled as S A A S B O O M I.com. Sasbumi.com. There is no H there. Until next time, this is Suresh signing off from you. Bye bye.